The idea is that you don't get ready for any specific problem, but you get ready for dealing with problems and you put into place uh, contingencies. You can't predict the future. All you can do is predict that you're probably going to have to adjust rapidly and under difficult circumstances. So get ready for it. From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pool of thoughts and ideas from IT experts, thought leaders, and authors sharing their insights and advice for individuals architecting solutions for the ever-changing landscape of enterprise tech, digital transformation, and more. Welcome to episode 60 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo. Joining me from Sydney, Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Good day, David. G'day, Kevin. All right. Our guest is the president and principal analyst at Inter Arbor Solutions, an enterprise IT analysis, market research, and consulting firm. He's known as a leading identifier of software and cloud productivity trends and new IT business growth opportunities, and honed his skills and refined his insights as an industry analyst, pundit, and news editor, covering the emerging software development and enterprise infrastructure arenas for the last 20 or so years. He's also the host of the Briefings Direct podcast. Joining us for a round of cocktails is Dana Garner. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. It's great to be here. Hey, Dana. Thanks for joining us. What made you, uh, what prompted you to make the transition from a journalist and editor to industry analyst and consultant all those 20 odd years ago? Well, David, I sort of just followed the, I think, natural path. Uh, If you're a, a writer and an editor for long enough, you get past the just reporting of the facts and you start to get deeper into the trends and the analysis and what it means. So it was sort of a natural transition to go from being a journalist to being an analyst. Um, I also did it right at the time when the internet's first uh, phase or arrival uh, was, was culminating and there was a need for people to try to understand what this means. And so it's about not just reporting the facts, but reporting the context and trying to help people uh, reckon with what's going on around them. And then again, you know, uh, 16 years uh, later, uh, made the jump, you know, to be more of a consultant and uh, a pundit and taking the industry analyst step uh, one, one one degree forward. And of course, you're still publishing content. So I understand you studied journalism and, and then obviously was practicing in the, in the uh, editorial and journalism space. And you're still producing content with your podcast as well. But you yes. said that, uh, you know, you were with Web 1.0, you were sort of educating people as to what was going on and, and you know, how to leverage the technology. So it's interesting to get your perspective of, of the evolution of, of, over those years of, from, web, from Web 1.0 to now where we're talking about digital transformation and all those kind of things. Yeah, well, the idea that um, things don't happen quite as fast as you might expect but happen much more significantly with greater impact, I think, has been the case. And while we knew that um, ease of of web internet connectivity and web page delivery ushered in a whole new ease of distribution of in- interesting ideas and news and um, helped create a whole background for loosely coupled uh, SaaS type applications, which led to the cloud. We really didn't have a clue that you know social uh, media would, would ride on top of that or that people's behaviors would be dictated 
uh, by a small device in their hands that they'd be walking around all day looking into, and that that would become global, pervasive, crossing all sorts of cultures, and have such a huge economic impact. So it, mm -hmm. it, it was. We were actually knew that it was big, but we had no clue as to how big the change was going to be. Yeah, it's exactly my experience as well. I remember in the in the late '90s when I starting in this game. I was educating people when I was trying to sell them websites. I was actually educating them on how to use email. Like it was really the very, very basics. And I was I was trying trying to convince them to start trading online in the in the late nineties, and uh, and so it seemed like a hard slog to educate, particularly small business at the time, the benefits. But like you say, like so you knew it was coming. But even then, you, the impact was just so significant and some of these things which we just did not anticipate. Uh, you've been producing uh, high-quality content now for several years. Um, I, I'm interested in gaining your perspective in terms of a content development expert of what's resonating with your audience. So maybe we can start with uh, the C-level executives and the IT leaders in organisations because I know you talk to a lot of industry-leading experts so what's resonating with your audience is what I'm getting at here is what are the areas of interest which is, is engaging people at the moment? Sure. Well, at the highest levels, it's still that strategy um, perspective of what to anticipate, trying to synthesize different trends and how they'll impact you and your place in your business. So for those C-suite folks, uh, you know, their jobs are about predicting the future and anything you can do to help them do that. And they're also dealing with massive complexity and very rapid change. So any insights, uh, any synthesis of uh, disparate uh, trends, and that's why I named my company Inner Arbor, it means between the trees. So you explain the trees to the forest dwellers and you ex explain the forest to the tree dwellers. And it's, it's really about context. And so uh, many people, of course, have to have their heads down and they're very focused on their jobs or they're very specific to a niche or a topic or a, a vertical industry. But because these trends are mega global and, you know, as we just pointed out, impactful over decades, you need to step back and be able to take that bigger picture. So what we try to do is create content that helps the people who are trying to forecast the future uh, get a better bead on that. But we also create content for those people that might be a, a little bit below that in terms of uh, specifying. They're looking for the next best technology. They're looking to solve concrete problems. And one of the best forms of content to help them do that is to learn from other people. Uh, word of mouth still works, even if we're doing it over networks and small uh, magical devices in our hands. And so we try to create um, user testimonial, user use case uh, discussions. So somebody who faced a problem, uh, rationalized it, got all the information they could, tried some technology, recognized that it does involve people process and technology, some of which are products, some of which are services, some of which have to be integrated uh, on the fly, and then how that worked for them. What did they get? What were the metrics of success? What were the challenges? What, what did they have to overcome? So whenever you can learn from someone else's journey, uh, that's very pragmatic, very practical. We have people who are you know, soaking that up because this is yet uh, another time when we're all faced with decisions, we're all spending money and trying to do it wisely, and we're all trying to predict the future. And it's interesting, the not only the success stories, but some of the challenges and failures as well, we can learn from those equally. You've spoken to a lot of C-level executives about their experience um, with their 
digital transformation related projects. Are there any of those case studies, do any of them stand out to you, some of those success stories or, or failures, unexpected failures? Well, one of the recurring challenges is uh, trying to find the intersection between human behavior and motivations and technology's capabilities and shortcomings. And there's often lags between what technology can do and what people in their habits and their um, culture do. And then there's sometimes where culture trumps technology and the technology needs to adapt, even though somebody may have come up with a list of requirements that they thought people wanted. So we've, we've actually been in quite a long period of mismatch between what technology can and should do and what people want, can, and have to try to adjust to. And getting in the middle of that and teasing it out uh, offers up some, some lessons. Um, you, you know, and, and, and these are old um, lessons because human culture and behavior hasn't changed too much, right? We're still the form function uh, uh, calculus that we've been for thousands of years. But um, trying to motivate people and to make sure that the horse is in front of the cart and not vice versa, to make sure that people are uh, motivated in a positive way, so a carrot rather than a stick, and um, showing them the, the productivity benefits of, of making the difficult uh, changes that sometimes we have to do. I mean, we all sort of seem to be on like a Newtonian uh, momentum. We like to go in a straight line that the, the direction that we've been in is hard to change. Uh, so you have to help people understand why the difficult process of change is ultimately uh, worth their while. And we've got plenty of lessons over the past 20 or 30 years as to why uh, sometimes it's very uh, fortuitous for you to change early rather than later. But you can't change so early that you get it wrong or you go down a, a blind alley or you use technology improperly. So it's a delicate balance. And those are the lessons that are and, and in some ways keep coming up over and over again. There's almost a, a, a pattern of adoption that every time there's a new type of technology, it's like peeling back an onion and you get another layer and then another difficult transition for people in groups, in complexity. Um, it, it's, it's kind of fascinating that these trends are recurring, but everything else is, is so different. Yeah, because I'm, I'm guessing like the the issue of implementing technology with people and process is not a new challenge. We've always had that challenge for decades. So what is it, what's different about the digital transformation era? Is it, is it the size of change? Is it the pace of change? Is it how much it's impacting culture? What's, what's different about it? I just think there's more variables at work and they're more dynamic and they're changing more rapidly. I mean, how could we have predicted three years ago that COVID and the reaction to it would be driving the work at home um, <clears throat> dynamic to the degree that, that it is. Um, you know, we're seeing 40, 50% of people that are gonna probably work at home for some significant amount of the time. And they may have gotten there on a technological basis earlier, but the behavior and the culture and the idea of allowing people that level of independence wasn't even close to being mm -hmm. ready. And the technologies didn't change overnight about two years ago, but the requirements did. And people stood up and made those adjustments because they had to. And so um, I, I think digital transformation has been foisted on people in the last two years, whereas before it was being 
uh, introduced to people and people were accepting it at different rates. Um, and so the struggle now is to say, okay, we've got these imperatives rather than nice to haves. Um, how do we make sure that um, we don't lose a lot of people? And I think one of the big reasons for the major resignation or what are they called the great resignation that we see in some sec uh, sections of the world has a lot to do with a, um, a disconnect and alienation between having to work technologically in front of a computer all day and really not um, being ready for it. And so people are saying enough, I'm out. Um, so that's, you know, an unfortunate, if, if that is what's happening, uh, an unfortunate um, uh, result of trying to change too much too quick. And also, of course, uh, business is under different pressure. We have inflation, we have supply chain issues, we have um, onshoring and offshoring from different markets around different sectors like manufacturing. Um, we've got delays in transportation and logistics, and we've had some pretty tough weather and natural um, disasters that have hampered uh, business as usual. And so business resiliency has become much more prominent. So all of these things kind of come together. And if you synthesize them, it's, it's, it's been a challenging and difficult time for many, many companies. Some have thrived, some have really done well, but a lot have struggled. It's interesting. You mentioned business resiliency and, and you've written about and talked about operational resiliency before and how it's one of the most top priorities that organizations should be taking a look at. So what? tell us more about that resiliency, resiliency and what does it mean? Yeah, the, the timing for oper operational resiliency is, is, is perfect. Um, and the idea is that you don't get ready for any specific problem, but you get ready for dealing with problems and you put into place uh, contingencies and you make redundant um, uh, supply, logistics, uh, human resources, and of course, technology resources. So that you can't predict the future. All you can do is predict that you're probably going to have to adjust rapidly and under difficult circumstances. So get ready for it. And it, it, it means also putting into place uh, the resources and the leadership in a company that can step up and be ready to uh, bring out the, the crisis playbook. And while it could be a natural disaster, it could be um, an economic uh, crisis, it could be currencies and financial crises um, or a massive healthcare issue or all of the above. And, and so that's where operational resiliency, uh, I think, is really important. Now, the nice thing about the timing, too, is that we have the ability to use big data analytics and cloud platforms so we can gather, store, and and crunch data better, faster, and cheaper than ever. And so one of the wonderful things you can do is learn very rapidly of if what you're doing is working. In an oper operational resiliency situation or application or use case, that's super powerful because you can't wait three months or six months to do a, uh, a post-mortem and decide whether what you did was good or fair or middling. You can use big data analytics and cloud platforms gather data uh, at the edge uh, around the world and learn very quickly whether what you're doing is uh, accomplishing your goals or not. So it's a really a interesting combination of need and technology and data analytics uh, that come together to make operational resiliency uh, much more attainable than, than it had been. Because there would have been a bunch of organizations that had uh, some of those pieces in place uh, uh, before the pandemic. When you're talking to your C-level executives, are you finding that uh, those that had some form of resiliency in place 
responded better or as you anticipated? Yes, I think the uh, the, the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic uh, mm. caught many companies uh, unaware of uh, needing second, third, and fourth sources. Uh, that just in time manufacturing and agile and lean principles of production weren't the end all be all. That sometimes you need to uh, have uh, Plan B. And organizations that had uh, already made the move towards digital transformation that could be uh, cloud-native, cloud-based, uh, working with data analytics uh, you know, very um, assiduously and applying that to their problems, I think did better. Um, you know, organizations that were on the dragging edge rather than the leading edge of technological and uh, data transformation, I think uh, probably um, are, are catching up. And our, you know, if we do have a financial crisis, the old adage that uh, you don't know, uh, you know, who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Um, you know, some of the companies that may be just struggling and hanging on, if they if they face some additional financial uh, pressure uh, and haven't made that digital leap, uh, might find themselves at a great disadvantage uh, because if their competitors have, uh, there's not going to be a lot of wiggle room for them to survive. Mm. And of course, you've also been a great advocate for a security-minded culture as well. Uh, what does a security uh, culture look like when more and more organizations are embracing a remote and hybrid working environments? Yeah, so your, um, your security risks have gone up dramatically because mm. more and more people are doing mission-critical activities uh, with technology that's going out across public networks and they're using devices uh, in their homes at the edge in ways that the corporation can't control. Uh, there's really no firewall, uh, literally or figuratively. Uh, everything is loosely coupled. Everything is out in the uh, open internet. So you need to have a different security posture. You need to think about how do I um, secure things in a way in that, that recognizes that um, we're probably gonna be under attack constantly there are going to be um, breaches, uh, but we need to be able to react quickly. Quickly, So it's sort of like that same operational resilience, having uh, the means and the plans in place to react um, to what should um, be anticipated but can't always be. So we're seeing things like zero, toler uh, um, zero trust. We're seeing things like air gapping. We're seeing technologies that require people to do uh, you know, multiple authentication levels uh, across multiple applications, multiple times a day. Um, but we're seeing that even as malware has taken off and this log4j and log4shell uh, vulnerability and an open source utility that's so widely used is another indicator of, um, you know, the vulnerabilities are, are going to not diminish. They're going to grow in number and complexity. And so it's incumbent upon us not to just think that we can throw up a garden wall and, and be immune from it, but how do we coexist? And how do we reduce the damage very quickly? And how do we make sure that the data that's most important, the personal, uh, uh, private, uh, health-oriented, and financially uh, sensitive information is always protected uh, first and foremost? These are the steps that people have to go through. And again, there are, there are laggards, and there are people that are suffering terribly from ransomware attacks. And um, there are people who are losing the ability to use their devices in their homes or uh, remote locations. 
uh, that is a huge impact on productivity. So security, uh, you know, is not uh, an afterthought. It's not separate from digital transformation. It is a part and parcel. So if you want to transform digitally, you're going to have to transform into a much more security-minded culture. And that has to be pervasive. It's your developers, your operators, it's uh, your regulators, and the people that are in compliance modes, the people who are thinking about resiliency need to also have a role in, in that level of resilience. They're, you're resilient against attack and against uh, data breaches. You mentioned productivity briefly there as well. I'd be interested to get your thoughts. There's been a lot of discussion uh, uh, over the last couple of years about the productivity productivity benefits or otherwise of remote working. Um, now, so in, in your futurist talks about what's happening in 2022, you talk about you know, how we're going to adapt to these new operating models we've learned over the last couple of years. Uh, before we get into how you think we're going to uh, start leveraging those operating models, what are your thoughts on uh, productivity gains or losses associated with how to, how to mitigate those in a remote working environment? Well, uh, it's hard to quantify these things. Um, and many attempts have been made by economists and data scientists uh, so we're often left with anecdotal um, and um, personal experiences to, to, to help us understand this. And uh, it's been my experience, and for those that I've worked with, that when you give people uh, responsibility and autonomy that are uh, often um, intertwined, that they can be very highly productive. Uh, it's when you try to I guess, uh, forecast how people should work and when they should work, that sometimes um, you, you lose that culture of innovation, you lose the spark of um, being inclusive and people who want to be involved rather than, than just going through the motion. So I do think that because we're all juggling, uh, and this is another thing, David, that we couldn't have predicted 20 or 30 years ago is just how busy we all are, right? I mean, some of us thought there'd be a four-day work week or, uh, you know, a 30-hour work week. And in some markets, that's been the case. But in many places, people are working longer and harder than ever, especially when the blurry line between what is work and what is um, entertainment or what is social interactions are, are, you know, there's not a lot of a concrete boundary between them. But I think if you give people that, level of autonomy and agency that if you tell them what you want them to do, but not how or when to do it, that productivity can be very, very powerful. And it's not just business productivity, it's personal productivity. If you could be at home and take care of your household and your family and, um, you know, have a, a level of um, natural um, activity outside the, the office and manage your time appropriately, that makes you very personally productive. You can have a better home, a better family, uh, a better health uh, posture, and you can also do great things for your company. So I think it's a it's a win-win. Many of the uh, studies that um, some of my clients have done are, are pointing to that, that um, you want people to be, um, I guess, sort of inventors. They invent how they do the job in the context of their lives, rather than just taking uh, instructions on how to do things. Mm. Yeah, I was actually reading an interesting article the other day of um, the 
was initially an advocate of the productivity benefits and working the extra long hours in the first stages of the pandemic. But then there was perhaps a little bit, this bit of fatigue of working from home. And initially it was a bit of a novelty. And, uh, and so everyone was adjusting and so they're working harder and longer because of that novelty factor. And perhaps a little bit of fatigue is set in, perhaps in certain job roles or certain functions, uh, and mention some, um, some statistics of certain productivity losses, uh, particularly in particular markets like Japan, I think it was 30% and stuff like that where they're estimating there's productivity losses. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I think the challenge for managers business managers when they you know do things like try and set up a business meeting and they get a response of i've got my yoga lesson <laughs> at that time i can't meet up with you and it's like well hang on a second <laughs> it's it's and so there's a lot to adjust here right yeah. it's, 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 it's an enormous change so putting you've talked about these these changes and this new operating model uh, and, okay, we've adjusted to that over the last couple of years. And now you've said, okay, now we're going to start leveraging that and uh, create new business efficiency. And, and this is where you're putting on your futurist hat for what's coming in 2022 and beyond. Tell us mm-hmm. about that. What are you seeing? Right. So so burnout is real. Uh, you, you can't push people too hard and you can't let them push themselves too hard. So mm-hmm. self-awareness about where productivity begins and ends is, is, is very important. But one of the things that we're also seeing, of course, is the plethora of applications. Many of them are SaaS applications. They're loosely coupled. They're not in an integrated uh, ERP stack like a lot of sort of businesses were, were run, running themselves, uh, you know, over the past 20 years, 30 years. And, you know, you're left uh, as an individual, as a human, trying to integrate multiple dynamic um, SaaS and, and loosely coupled applications. And that becomes, I think, a productivity hit. And, you know, one of the things we need to do is recognize that people are burning out on authenticating across multiple apps, uh, dealing with multiple interfaces, having to be their own IT department, and that the productivity can plateau and, and, and even diminish when when that becomes prominent. So we have to focus more on making people work smarter, not harder. We have to look towards automation and intelligence to help anticipate what people's needs are, but also what their hurdles are going to be. And let's, let's let the technology help um, you know, nurture what people do best and take on some of the by rote work, you know, the whole robotic uh, pro, uh, programmable robotic automation and, and similar technologies are trying to do that. Um, so there's there's a lag. I think what we've done is sort of gotten out in front of our over our skis a little bit too far when it comes to this work at home technology, and we need to bring the technology uh, equation back around to help people be productive in ways that let the machines do what they do best, take advantage of um, data and analytics that can learn and analyze how people are actually working, and then uh, reinforce what what's good and 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 start to weed out what's what's not good, uh, but we're not there yet. So I think these are still early innings of that that higher level productivity where people should be given the tools to be making the decisions and doing the analysis and thinking about processes and markets and success and uh, customer satisfaction, uh, not spending hours a day 
uh, making applications work or figuring out how to drag data from one place to another, right? Well, of course, I'm thrilled to hear you say that because at Toro Cloud, we do uh, application integration and automation, so workflow automation. So it's great to hear you say that that's where you think uh, the next phase is uh, for a lot of organizations that need to enable productivity with employee, uh, with, with remote working and the like. But of course, a large part of uh, digital transformation is also, uh, and you touched on this, uh, empowering the individual to not only just be more productive, but make better decisions uh, with better ac access to data so that they can actually transform the company by taking them in new directions with new customer service initiatives or new products and services, uh, em empowering that 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 uh, employee to to make those kind of decisions. Are you right. witnessing that kind of thing as well? Um, yeah, for sure. So take uh, application development, for example. So some of the trends that are happening in application development involve things like low code and no code, um, more automation, letting the machines do uh, the grunt work. And so it's the creativity and it's the um, out of the box thinking that humans can do the machines can't that becomes paramount. And I think we're going to see analogs to that in other uh, business functions. If it works in application development, if you can do it there, you can probably do it just about anywhere. But um, so, yes, I, I think that we, we're, we're going to need to rethink work, uh, literally, um, and uh, rethink about how uh, the, the machines, the technology um, augments people rather than, you know, repaving cow paths or taking processes and giving them minor improvements just because they're digital and thinking about rather a more dramatic and even, um, I guess, uh, radical types uh, of, of shifts. Uh, because, you know, interestingly, right now, interestingly, David, uh, because of work at home, um, you can hire labor just about anywhere in the world. Um, they, You and I are all talking from vastly different places, literally on, on the other side of the planet with ease uh, for short money. Um, so the sky's the limit when it comes to how to best use human resources. And we can all uh, attain technology off the cloud and analytics as a service off the cloud. So the sky is kind of the limit um, to what we can start to do. We shouldn't be timid. I think we should be bold and start thinking rather dramatically about how to, to refactor work. We had a guest recently where, because you mentioned people, process, and technology, and our recent guest was talking about what the, the, the merging of technology with people. Some of the challenge associated with that is an educational challenge where you need to upskill the people to be able to deal with technology. So you mentioned yourself various low-code, no-code tools, but there's still technology where you all of a sudden your expectation is there's that citizen developer is also now all of a sudden putting on an IT hat as well and developing things, right? Are, are our expectations too high? How much of a people process problem is there here? That's an excellent question. I'm afraid that the digital divide is as deep and wide as ever and it's probably going to get worse. Um, not everybody's a rock star software mm -hmm. developer, right? Not everybody can juggle three or four highly difficult, complex processes simultaneously and synthesize them into a new process. So yeah. we do have to be bold, but we also have to be realistic. But I think you're right, education uh, also needs transformation, right? If we're still educating people to work a nine to five type of a, a labor environment doing uh, manufacturing or 
uh, assembly line or linear processes uh, that may have been uh, you know necessary 50 years ago, never mind 30, uh, but are less less so now. Uh, I think it's important for people to consider um, that you can't refactor work uh, without refactoring education and giving people uh, all the opportunity that 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 they deserve. You know, one of the things that's um, hampering many businesses right now is they just can't find people, and it's not just people at at low entry level jobs. It's across the board, at, from the highest to the lowest levels, and so therefore we need to bring more people. Uh, into this ability to be uh, productive in this new kind of digital environment. And, you know, I think, you know, free education, incentives, paying people to go to school if, if, if really uh, necessary. And it is a lot about incentives and a lot about um, helping people achieve but overcome obstacles. I mean, there are a lot of difficult obstacles to overcome to be to, to be what we now define as sort of a digital warrior or a digital worker. So we need to level the playing field and we need to encourage and incentivize people to make the leap. And, and then if those people who don't choose to do that or can't do that, uh, we need to think about helping them out too. Enormous challenges, but exciting times. So things haven't got boring in the last 20 years of studying the market, has it? <laughs> never never boring. No, that would not be the word uh, I, could, I could use. Diana, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Can you tell, uh, share with us, with our audience, where they can follow you? You have an enormous following on LinkedIn, and, of course, you have your podcast. Can you tell our audience about those? Yeah, I mean, most of the um, places when I do publish, uh, I always go out through LinkedIn and through Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Dana underscore Gardner. And you can certainly just search on my name on LinkedIn and find me there. But those are probably the best places to uh, get a beat on, on what I'm doing and the type of content that we're creating and the subjects and issues that we're delving into. And of course, your uh, podcast is called Briefings Direct as well. Yeah, no, Briefings Direct is, is the brand. You can search on that as well. But everything I put up on Briefings Direct is also amplified out through Twitter and, and LinkedIn. Brilliant. Diana, thanks for your time today. My pleasure, David. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thank you for joining us in this round of cocktails. Please like and subscribe to check out other episodes of this podcast series. We're also available on your favorite podcast platforms, or you can simply listen in at torocloud.com, where you'll find full episode transcripts and show notes. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!